All right, if you have your Bible with you this morning, we are in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, continuing our way through the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 18. And we are at the halfway mark on this chapter, verse 16 of Genesis chapter 18 and verse 16. Genesis chapter 18, sorry, and verse 16. says, And the men rose up from thence, And looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abram stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again, and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, O Lord, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not, <coughs> I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. In Genesis chapter 18, we read a prayer of intercession that is offered by the patriarch Abraham on behalf of the city of Sodom and the other cities of the plain. It's an interesting read because it reminds us, first of all, that we ought to pray for men, and then it shows us how we ought to pray for men. Now, the last time we were together, we left Abraham standing by his table as the Lord and two angels enjoyed his hospitality. But now the meal has come to an end and the two visitors rise, the three visitors rise from the table and are preparing to move on. 
Now, although verse 16 says, and the men arose. Remember, these are not men. This is the Lord, uh, and it is two angels who are accompanying uh, the Lord. And they have come before Abraham in human form. And as they arose from his table, we read that the men looked toward Sodom. Now, there must have been something in that look. Some measure of intent, some sense of determination that really gave rise to a question in Abraham's mind. Nevertheless, he went with them to bring them on the way. There then follows what's called a soliloquy. A soliloquy is a tool that is used in the theatre and drama. You've seen it used perhaps if you've gone to a pantomime or something where one of the actors has an aside. He puts his hand to his face and he talks to the audience like this. And what he's doing is he's letting you in on the thoughts of, of, of his own mind or indeed he's filling you in on the story as though the other actors on the stage cannot hear. And essentially that's what happens here. The Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do he's speaking to us and he's saying do you really think I'm going to do that I'm going to hide from Abraham the thing that I'm going to do that I'm going to keep it a secret uh, from him now of course we know thee will not keep it a secret why because Abraham first of all is the friend of God second of all he is the beneficiary of his covenant and he is to become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because of him and in him so what is it that God is going to do that's the question and we read in verses 20 and 21 of God's indictment upon Sodom Notice what he says there in verses 20 and 21. He says, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it of Sodom and Gomorrah, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the man turned, uh, sorry, first, I sh- I'm, forgive me, I should have read verse 20. The Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. Now we read that the cry of Sodom came to the ears of the Lord. And the picture is one of an outcry. It's an outrage. This was a city that prided itself in worldly and sensual pleasures. But it was filled with people who were suffering great pain as a consequence of that. The Bible fills in some of the details for us concerning ancient Sodom. If you were to look in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, the Lord Jesus points to Sodom and indeed the days of Lot as indicative of the days of the last uh, of the end times. In Luke chapter 17 and uh, verse 28, he says uh, that uh, likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Ezekiel also gives us some details of ancient Sodom. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49, Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49 says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. 
Now when you piece together those descriptions, you get a picture of what life was like in ancient Sodom. First of all, if you remember, Lot chose to live in the plain of Sodom. And in terms of agriculture, Lot chose well. He made a good choice. The land around the city was well watered, and life within the city itself was actually very good. Jesus says they were eating and drinking. And the picture is one of indulgence. They were satisfying their flesh with the greatest of delicacies that ancient Canaan land had to offer. In other words, there was an emphasis in this city upon fleshly appetites. Ezekiel describes the place as being characterized as having fullness of bread. That is, they were indulgent. These people didn't just eat to live, but they lived to eat. They, they indulged themselves. But not only were they indulgent, they were affluent. For the people of Sodom, we find, were businessmen and women. They worked the markets. They were free market traders. They were buying and selling. So its citizens were economically secure. And hence we find the Lord Jesus speaks of them as planting and building. There's only planting and building going on when the economy is good. And so all of this identifies the city as a city that was enjoying financial stability, a city that was enjoying financial increase, a city in which the citizens enjoyed life there, that there was much to offer them. And uh, we can sort of picture the kind of city that it may well have been. However, Ezekiel also tells us it was a city condemned in Scripture for its pride and its promiscuity. You know, friends, affluence and indulgence might well do that to a society. When a society becomes affluent, when it becomes indulgent, when it becomes fleshly, When it becomes worldly in that sense, very often it gives way to pride and promiscuity. And we see that in our own society. You you think about the generation that we're now living in compared to our grandparents' generation. You think about just two or three generations ago when people were just happy to have you know, a little bit of bread and meat on the table. There was a time when only the father got to eat any meat on the table. And all the children would sit around and watch. Now you and I live in a society where our kids can put food in their mouths and spit it out and say, I don't like that. There was a time when people had to work morning till night, six days a week, and got just a little time off on Sundays to go to church. And and now we're getting to a point where people are working from home and sometimes they're being asked to work just four days a week and and sometimes they're pushing even to work just three days a week. And, And so there's idleness. And as we see that affluence and that indulgence and that idleness developing, we see also pride and promiscuity developing also. How interesting, when we speak of the sin of homosexuality in our society, we speak of it as gay pride. Those two words going together, something promiscuous, gay, something proud, pride. Pride and promiscuity. You know, in the month of June, the United Kingdom celebrates Pride Month. You'll see this if you've got a television. Let me tell you something. Honestly, if I had small children now, I would seriously consider not having a television. The stuff that they're subject to. In the month of June, it'll be Pride Month, and and everything will be all to do with homosexuality and promoting that lifestyle. And you think about it. We have one day in the year in which we remember our fallen soldiers, and we give a whole month 
to celebrating promiscuity. Our queen has been on the throne for 70 years. We've got about three days this year to celebrate it. In the same month, we'll celebrate every day promiscuity and pride. That's where we are as a society. And yet for all of that, for all of that sin and all of that wickedness, you've got to remember there were people in this city that were suffering as a consequence. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, you know what? When you go on and read the account of these visitors when they come into Sodom, the men come to Lot's house and they're beating on his door and they're desirous to molest these visitors that have come into their midst, these strangers that have come into their midst. Uh, these were, this was a society in which uh, such was the depth of sin that there was undoubtedly victims of abuse in that society. No question about it. What a terrible place to live. Here's the underbelly of Sodom. By day it was a bastion of economics and commerce and trade, but by night it was a hellhole filled with sin and the victims of sin. And there had been an outcry. Just as God heard Abel's blood crying from the ground, just as he heard the cry of the Hebrew slaves as they were oppressed in ancient Egypt, so he heard the cry of Sodom. And he wouldn't permit that city to continue one day more. So the Lord says to Abraham, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. Now, of course, God did know. He's simply using anthropomorphic language here. He's speaking as a man to a man. He's speaking to us as friend to friend. He's making his intentions known to us. And again, this is just adding to the drama of all that is unfolding in this chapter. There's God's indictment of Sodom. But we find also Abraham's intercession for Sodom in verses 22 to 33. Now Abraham knew when these men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, he knew that it wasn't going to end well for Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbors that surrounded them. And yet with all, he had family in that city. Lot lived in that city with his wife with his two children. So Abraham had family in that children. He may have had some in that city, he may have had some more besides those. And yet Abraham's care here was not for his loved ones alone. If you notice what he's praying there from uh, verses 23 onward, as Abraham prays, not once does he mention Lot by name. He's not praying for Lot. He's not praying for Lot's family. He's praying for the lost. His concern is for the unsaved. Friends, when a church stops caring about the lost, that church has lost its way. When a church stops praying for the unsaved, when we become indifferent to the plight of the sinner, we're in a very bad place indeed as a fellowship. When churches stop looking outward, they begin to look inward, and they start to bite and devour one another. That's what happens. 
And so we have to keep the main thing as the main thing. And we have to keep the Lord's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature ever before us and see that as our primary duty as a church, that our goal is to get out the gospel. Now when we read that the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Notice that last little line. Abraham stood yet before the Lord there in verse 22. How much of our success in prayer rests upon our standing before the Lord? Think about that. Abraham stood before the Lord. What's your standing before the Lord? Can you stand before him? When you come into his presence, is he prepared to hear your prayer? Psalm 66 and 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You know, there are Christians whom the Lord hasn't heard for many a year. Why? Because they've got iniquity in their heart. They hold grudges and they're bitter and and their lives are filled with sin. And yet with all, they come before God and they pray and they ask God for this and ask God for that. And God isn't answering. Why? Because they've got no standing before God. The psalmist in Psalm 66 went on and said, Verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. When we are living right, God hears our prayers. When we're living right, we can expect an answer from the Lord. We're able to come and stand before him. But where there is known sin in our lives, where our our lives are, are really locked into our own willfulness, the heavens become as brass and God will not hear us. He's not going to hear our prayer. Abraham stood before the Lord. Where's your standing this morning? Verse 22 says, and Abraham stood before the Lord. That is, he drew near. Verse 23, Abraham drew near. And that's what we do when we pray. We stand before the Lord and we draw near. The writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Listen now, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. He says you cannot come before God. You cannot draw near to God and have a bad conscience. You cannot come into his presence knowing that things are not right in your life. He says let us draw near with a true heart. With full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Without wavering for faithful is he that promised. If our lives are right, we can come before the Lord with confidence and assurance and expect an answer. Turn with me to James chapter 4 for a moment, if you would. James chapter 4. Notice what it says in verse 8. Draw nigh or draw near to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. 
Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh of his brother, speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? This is what the scriptures are telling us here. Draw near unto God, he will draw near unto you. But as you're drawing near unto God, you've got to cleanse your hands, you sinners. You've got to come in the right spirit. You've got to purify your hearts. You can't come double-minded. You can't come with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You can't come saying, well, I'll live for Jesus on Sunday, but live how I please on Monday through Saturday. Can't be double mindedness. And the Lord says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. He's talking about your sins. Christians need to repent sometimes. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. He'll, he'll lift up your spirit. And He says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. Remember this you never come to the throne of grace alone. We saw that in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as, as we forgive. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You never come alone to the Lord. What and, and how you behave with others is not inconsequential at the throne of grace. It matters at the throne of grace. God is not just looking at me. He's looking at those around me. And how I'm treating them and how I'm relating to them and how I'm dealing with them. And so the Lord says, Speak not evil of one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges, of the, judges the law. And if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, now you've taken the place of God. And judging another. He closes, There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? How important that is as we draw near. Abraham drew near unto the Lord. Notice as he draws near to God, notice the first words that come out of his mouth in verse 23. Verse uh, verse 23, yeah. Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? You see, he knew. And he understood the character of, of God, And he knew that God would not judge the righteous along with the wicked. That's never God's way. If you look through the scriptures, you see it here in the, in the instance of Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll see next time how that God pulls out Lot and his family before he judges the city. You see it in Exodus how that the people of Israel who were gathered in Goshen, the Hebrews who were in Goshen, were protected from the plagues that bothered the rest of Egypt. You see it in the fall of Jericho, how that Rahab's house is spared, whilst the rest of the houses in Jericho fall down. You even see it in terms of prophecy, as the Lord promises to remove from this earth those who are his before he judges the world in tribulation. And then even in the tribulation itself, those who are left behind when the 144,000 come to know Christ as their Savior during the tribulation, he seals them so as to protect 
protect them from the judgments of the tribulation. And even in the eternal, uh, when we get to the, uh, to the cusp of eternity, even there we find the Lord makes a difference between the saved and the lost. He will judge the saved, that is great white throne of judgment. It's a judgment which offers reward, but he will judge the lost. Uh, sorry, he'll judge the saved. And I, this is, I'm just exhausted this week. He'll judge the saved at the judgment seat of Christ. He'll judge the lost at the great white throne of judgment. He makes a difference between the two. He's not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. And Abraham knew that. Now friends, I would say to you, as Abraham prays and he acknowledges the character and nature of God as he's praying, don't be afraid to, uh, to remind God of his character, to remind him of his word, to pray on the basis of his ways, of his known character. Now, what Abraham did next is really, really interesting, and it may well surprise you. He's praying with God, and he begins to bargain with God. He starts to bargain and barter, if you like, uh, with God. Verse, uh, verse 24, he says, Peradventure, there may be 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for 50 righteous that are therein? Now, you've got to remember something about Abraham. Abraham's a Middle Eastern figure. He's a nomad. He's a traveling herdsman. And this was their way of life. For such men, haggling becomes second nature. They haggle over everything. You know, we Westerners are not used to haggling. You go into uh, Tesco's and you buy a bottle of milk and they say it's £1.50. You don't go up to the the desk at the the till and say, I'll give you £1.25 for it. They'd throw you out, wouldn't they? They wouldn't entertain you. You couldn't call the manager down and haggle over a bottle of milk. That'd be fun. But it's not going to happen. You know, you can't go into Curry's and look at a washing machine and say, well, that's 350 quid. I'll give you 200 pounds for it. They're not going to entertain it. And so we Westerners are not used to haggling. But people in the Near East, in the Middle East, in the Far East are used to haggling. That's part and parcel of their way of life. When I was uh, in Israel the first time and, and Hazel wasn't with me, I went into a shop to buy a, a little ornament that I saw and I thought would be a nice little gift for her when I came home. And I went in and, there, and I asked the man the price and he says it was 60 shekels. I think that's what he said. And I said, oh, that's too expensive. And I, and I started walking out and as I was walking out, he went, 40 shekels. And I came back and I looked at it and thought, 40 shekels, no, that's still a bit. And I walked out and he says, 35 shekels. And then I suddenly occurred to me, he's haggling. Now we could, we could start discussing a price. Same thing when we went to Hong Kong. We went to Hong Kong and uh, we saw, I saw this woman who was haggling with one of the market traders. I won't tell you who it is, but she's sitting about one, two, three rows back. And uh, she was haggling with one of the market traders over a souvenir mug that she was wanting to buy. And I was standing there for about 10 minutes as she was haggling with this woman and they were going back and forth about how many Hong Kong dollars this mug was worth. And then I thought, this is taking forever. And I got my calculator out and I calculated how much that was worth what they were fighting over. And I whispered in my dear wife's ear, that's only five pence. (laughs) And she looked at me and she says, it's the principle of the thing. Well, that's how it is in the Middle East. It's the principle of the thing. 
And so Abraham, you know, he wasn't trying to save a few pence here, actually. He was interceding for people. He was trying to save people. And notice, and this is really important, Abraham isn't protesting about Sodom. He's praying for Sodom. You know, there's some Christians and all they ever want to do is protest. And carp and complain against society and hold up placards and, 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 and shout at people. Friends, listen, if we, would, if we would pray more and protest less, we might actually find that we're actually getting somewhere in this society. Praying for the lost. Again, notice his argument with the Lord in prayer and how he bases it upon what he knows of him in verse 25. He says, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Of course God will do right. He always does right. So Abraham begins his bidding at 50 souls. He says, if there are 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, Lord, would you spare the whole city? And notice, the Lord says, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I want you to notice this, I will spare, verse 26, all the place, notice the last three words, for their sakes. It's not the wicked that God is interested in sparing here. It's the righteous. It's the godly who will stay his hand of judgment. You know, sometimes our unsaved friends will ask us, well, why doesn't God do anything about the evil in the world? You want to know why God doesn't do anything about the evil in the world? Because we're still here. The Christian in the world acts as salt. Salt is a preservative. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Salt preserves. That's one of, its ro- one of its roles as a substance. It preserves meat. And here the Lord Jesus teaching us that we as Christians are preserving the society around us by our presence, by our testimony, by our worship of the Lord. And so God wasn't prepared to save Sodom for the sake of the Sodomites. He was prepared to save Sodom for the sake of any righteous that might be in the city. So Abraham began with 50. He says, Lord, if there's 50 righteous in the city, will you save it? And the Lord says, I'll do that for 50. And Abraham says, what about 45? Would you do it for 45? The Lord says, I'll do it for 45. He says, what about 40, 30, 20? Finally, he says, what about 10? If there's just 10 righteous people in that city, would you preserve that city? And the Lord says, I'll do it even for 10. You know, this is the basis of the Jewish synagogue. You can only have a Jewish synagogue in a town or a city where there are 10 men that live in that city. That's how they operate. That's the quorum you need to have a synagogue. It's based on this passage. And so Abraham says, well, what about if there's just ten? And the Lord says, well, even if there's ten, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Now, it's often said that Abraham stopped asking before God stopped giving. In other words, there's people who think, well, Abraham should have just asked for three or four. He knew there was at least three people, Lot and his two nieces, who would be saved from that city. Possibly Lot's wife, although we know that she was later judged. So there's possibly four and certainly three people in that city who were going to be saved. 
You think, well, Abraham, shouldn't you have just said, well, what about three? If there's three righteous people in this city, would you spare the city? But he stops at 10. And I'll tell you something about the principle of haggling. Haggling is not about outwitting the other person. You know, we Westerners, we go to, on holiday to the Middle East or we go on holiday to the Far East and we haggle for the first time in our lives perhaps and, you know, you go there and you're buying a souvenir or whatever it is and you haggle with this person for however much and you come away and you think you've pulled the wool over the guy's eyes and you've got this, you know, item that you've bought, this souvenir and you think to yourself, man, I got a bargain on that. I showed that guy. He wanted $50 and I've got it for $25. And you walk away like the cat that got the cream. Do you really think think that that trader has sold you that item for less than what he paid for it? Do you think he's not making a profit of it? Do you think he's really as daft as he, as, as he looks as you might see it? Of course not. He's making a profit. He knows the game of haggling better than you. He's trying to, he's trying to protect his profit margin in that, in that arrangement. And so those who haggle in those cultures know that, that the, the, the purchaser isn't coming away with a particularly good bargain necessarily, nor indeed is the seller one who's at great loss as a consequence of the process, but that both have come to a point of agreement. There's a meeting of minds in haggling where the buyer and the seller agree what they both believe is a fair price, a fair price to pay and a fair degree of profit being paid. Now, so it was here. When Abraham stops at 10, it's not because he's he's somehow selling himself short that God was still prepared to give something in this discussion, but rather it's because Abraham, as the friend of God, is so attuned to the mind of God and the character of God that he instinctively knows when to stop. He instinctively knows that 10 is the bottom line. God was not prepared to preserve that city. For less than 10 righteous people. And so what he would do instead is he would remove the righteous from the city. Rather than judging them with the rest. Charles Swindoll says this. God's love is infinite. And his grace is free. But his mercy has an expiration date. God's love is infinite. His grace is free. But his mercy has an expiration date. And friends, there's a great truth in that. God's love to the world right now is infinite. God's grace toward the earth right now is free. God is being merciful to the citizens of this planet each and every day. But there's an expiration date. There's coming a day when God says, no more mercy. And he's going to call away his church. He's going to take out those who are saved. And he's going to judge this planet. Meanwhile, you and I, should be doing two things in response to that thought. Number one, we should be praying. And number two, we should be proclaiming. Praying for the lost and proclaiming Christ. And here's a beautiful lesson in intercessory prayer. If you look at it, here's Abraham and he comes before God. He stands before God. In the first instance, he's modest. He doesn't know exactly what God would do, but he prays the thing through until he does know what God will do. 
that he's humble. He doesn't come demanding of God. I once heard of a, of a health and wealth preacher who was preaching in Brighton in the south of England, one of the big shots so-called, and he stood on a platform and he lifted his fist at God and he screamed at God, come on down God and do your stuff. What arrogance. What utter irreverence. What pride that a, a, an ant of a man would stand and shake his fist at God as if somehow or other he can push God around. Abraham didn't have that spirit. Notice verse 27, he says, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. He says, Lord, you don't owe me anything. Who am I to ask of you? And then he was persistent. He came back again and again. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Six times in all. He comes back to the Lord with essentially the same prayer. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus taught us? It says, He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying there was in a city a judge who feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge Avenge me of mine adversary, and he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest her continual coming, by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him, though he bear along with them. Notice what the man says, I will avenge her. He says, he says I, I, because, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. Persistence in prayer. Abraham was persistent in prayer. Are you praying for a lost one? Are you praying for your father or your mother, your son, your daughter, a husband, a wife? You tempted to give up. You tempted to say, well, you know, I paid for them for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. No, no, no. You keep going. Be persistent in prayer. Abraham understood that. And he was persuasive in prayer. Why? Because he based his requests on the character of God. His prayer was, of course, ultimately to be rejected in the end, not because God was rejecting him but because the people of Sodom had rejected the Lord. The cause of their destruction would lie with them and the fault lie at their door. But here's my question for you this morning as we close. Who are you praying for? Are all your prayers about you? Your family, your needs, your job, your finances, your health? Who are you praying for? Are you praying for the lost? Will you pray for the lost? Will you pray for the village of Points Pass and the outlying areas? Will you pray for people that you know, friends and neighbors and colleagues? Will you make it your business to stand before God on their behalf? Will you pray for your unsafe friends and loved ones? And is your standing such that you can reasonably expect to get an answer to that prayer? Well, did Samuel say, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. He was talking about a wayward nation. A nation that was choosing, choosing a king 
over God's system of prophets and judges. He said, God forbid that I should cease. I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Now, let me ask you again. Who will you pray for? This week, I want to encourage you to think of at least one lost person. Somebody that you love. Somebody that you know. Somebody that you have opportunity, as God allows, to witness to. I want you to commit yourself to praying for that person each and every day. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.